Hello, all. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Susan Elder. I work at Joint State Government Commission. I'm here with Glenn Pasowitz, who's our executive director, and Brian DeWalt, one of our project managers. And I'm going to start this by turning it over to Glenn and asking him to talk just a little bit about Joint State Government Commission. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Let's start off with the basics. Uh, The Joint State Government Commission is the primary nonpartisan public policy and legislative research agency for the Pennsylvania General Assembly, which does not sound basic at all. In practical terms, its role is to provide comprehensive reports on nearly any topic that any member of either chamber feels is important enough to warrant the legislature's consideration. Examples of recent reports include one on broadband internet access across Pennsylvania, the shortage of mental health care professionals in the Commonwealth, and the topic of today's podcast, converting unused state properties into drug and alcohol treatment centers. In general, each project starts as draft legislation, nearly always as a resolution, then goes through the legislative process from committee to adoption on the floor. The resolutions essentially serve as outlines, directing the specifics that the House or Senate want us to report on. Reports often include recommendations, If there's a legislative remedy for any particular problem, our staff drafts it and puts it in the report for the legislature's consideration. We do two types of studies. One is type is the staff study, which was this particular topic that we're discussing today. The staff goes out and connects with the people who are the experts in the field and builds the report based on that. Many of the resolutions direct us to establish advisory committees of experts in the field which convene to discuss the topics at length. Advisory committees typically have between 20 and 30 members. The members of each advisory committee are invited to volunteer their time and resources from across the spectrum of their experiences that they bring from around the Commonwealth. Depending on the topic, an advisory committee might have doctors, lawyers, educators, parents, technology experts, people who have recovered from substance abuse disorder, people who have been incarcerated, law enforcement, you name it. At times, we've had between 350 and 400 people serving on advisory committees. Each advisory committee meets five or six times over the course of a year-long project. Our staff handles the background research, the writing, and facilitates the meetings. The advisory committee members talk, share ideas with each other and with us, and make recommendations. In the end, we release a report that reflects the general consensus of the advisory committee members. At that point, the advisory committee dissolves. Now, the members themselves are welcome to continue advocating on behalf of their interests. But generally speaking, uh, we as a staff move on to the next report. Thanks, Glenn, for that overview of Joint State's work process. We're going to turn our attention now to House Resolution 147. The prime sponsor on House Resolution 147 is Representative Jim Gregory. He's a House member from Blair County. As Glenn mentioned earlier, this resolution focuses on the conversion of unused state property into treatment facilities. Brian, you're our project manager on this study. Could you give us a better understanding of the full scope of this project? Sure, Susan. I think the main idea of the study was to take a good look at the property inventory that the Department of General Service, uh, DGS, puts together and take a look at any of the buildings that have been designated as vacant over time and just try to imagine which ones could be put to a more beneficial use. 
And in this case, there's a, a quite a big need because of the opioid epidemic for more drug treatment facilities. So we're trying to see which of these buildings might be a good fit for that. But the hard part is a lot of the buildings aren't being used for good reasons. They might be outdated or in need of repairs or soon to be demolished or sold. You mentioned that the list is already compiled and provided to um, legislative state government committees. Can you speak into that a little bit? Why isn't that currently sufficient? Well, all the agencies... They currently have a large list of responsibilities that a lot of them are much more critical to their individual missions. So while I'm sure a lot of the agencies would prefer a higher level of compliance uh, with uh, f- filling out a survey to DGS every time they change properties, often it's just something that they might not find enough time to do, or uh, it could be just lost in the shuffle if they're really going through a a very big process where they might be moving a whole lot of facilities at once, or some of these ones just kind kind of creep over time. So the hope is that the new Tririga software that DGS has contracted from IBM will help kind of automate the process of generating these lists and allow uh, at least DGS staff and hopefully legislative officials too, to have a bit more control in creating customized reports and be able to just have a better degree of accuracy and and more information with faster updates. So that's kind of the hope going forward. You mentioned Tririga software. Could you give us just a really brief understanding of what that is and where it's at? It was being implemented by DGS before the study even started, but unfortunately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, implementation and on rollout's been slowed quite a bit. So DGS, the hope is that eventually they'll be able to have a much more automated process and be able to put sensors in buildings that are able to give a much better degree of the occupancy and kind of greater climate control and even monitoring of repairs too. There's the whole suite of applications available for the software. We just don't really know how DGS will eventually decide to use it. Okay. Is there a current example of this kind of conversion going on that you could highlight for us? I can highlight some past examples that that have worked out pretty well. We didn't find a whole lot of instances where unused property was converted into drug treatment centers. In our report, we go through a number of cases, but kind of the historical one we're looking at is uh, the DGS currently has management of the Pennsylvania State Hospital, now known as the DGS Annex. And they rent out two uh, buildings to Gardenzia, And out of those buildings, they currently run drug treatment facilities. And the hope is that even though DGS is ultimately looking to sell all that land for development, that they'll be able to keep those two facilities in place because there aren't many areas where there currently are zoning for these types of facilities. So that's always one of the struggles when anyone tries to make uh, drug treatment facilities finding a good location to put it. 
Can, can you give us a better understanding of what type of services you're actually talking about and what types of facilities these are? Yeah. So in the report, we kind of provide a list of just kind of different configurations. There's no one way to, to get treatment. And there's a kind of a whole swath of configurations available uh, to, to get treated. So for example, some might be more of an outpatient with very intensive care. Others might take the form of a partial hospitalization, medically monitored detoxification. Sometimes these facilities are residential and or they're focused on specific age groups such as adult, adolescent, or women with children. So it all kind of depends who the target, who they want to attract to these facilities, where the, what the need is in the individual communities. One example is there's therapy that often goes hand in hand with standard forms of detoxification. So in a lot of times they'll offer cognitive behavioral therapy or individual or group therapy sessions. Okay. What are some of the barriers that you found while you were putting the report together to this type of repurposing? A lot of the barriers have a little bit less to do with the repurposing itself and more to do with the kind of facility we want to have. I mentioned before that the zoning is incredibly tough to make a drug rehab facility. And even cases where you previously had a building for a medical purpose in a residential area, and it kind of had an exception, there's no guarantee going forward that that will be able to be used as a rehab center. You kind of have to convince communities on a case-by-case basis to allow these facilities in their neighborhoods. And that, you know, you have to really work hard to gain the community's acceptance and to just be very transparent with the process of of you putting the facility in the neighborhood and just try to foster an environment where everyone understands what you're doing and what the risks are and aren't. So it just, it's hard to overcome the not in my backyard mentality sometimes. In remote areas, places where we might not think there's one instance of a Pennsylvania facility in a very rural location where someone wants to convert their own land in a wooded area into a lodge that would kind of treat troubled teens, uh, especially. But there was all kinds of worry about what's the effect on the force this is going to have, or what will it do to local crime or to property values. And those concerns, they're, they're very common, but so far the studies have shown that, that we've looked at in the report that often the, the, the fears are greatly over-exaggerated, even if they have small foundations. In fact, for example, property values in a neighborhood with a drug rehab facility might take a small hit within an eighth of a mile, but that's overall a pretty small effect, or that it could increase violent crime depending on the community it's placed in, but it might not increase it any more than, say, a corner store or a gas station. I would like to talk, I guess, a little bit. One solution for like the, the zoning issue is I, I saw in the Pocono area, they, ha- they started creating overlays that permit, that just kind of go over the existing zoning uh, patchwork and permit special uses. So the hope in the Pocono region is they're going to be able to change some of these old abandoned resorts that no longer have a purpose and maybe make some of those into treatment centers. 
did you find, did you come across anything similar in other states that's being done right now? We found, I guess overall, when we looked at other states, there aren't very many examples of, of drug treatment facilities being created from old state buildings. We found that there are just kind of an endless list of, of possibilities when you sell state property. It's almost limited by the imagination and resources you have at your disposal. So some examples I can give you are Florida took an old prison space and transformed it into a homeless shelter, more of a community, uh, just a place in a wooded area where uh, people could find a home for a time. Tennessee had sold a prison that was just sitting there for 15 years, and they have a lot of hopes of making it into a high-end distillery and tourist attraction. So I'd say overall, the state that I found had one of the best examples of reusing old property was our neighboring New York State. They have a redevelopment agency called Empire State Development that really works hard to repurpose and reuse a lot of their old governmental space. And I, the, the list of things they were able either to, to convert or, or think about was that movie studios or services for women who are leaving prison. So this is happening elsewhere, but not necessarily focused on the opioid use. Yes. Not many states run their own drug treatment facilities. So oftentimes they are trying to encourage them in other ways, just by providing funding. They rarely sell the land directly to people who might make the facilities. But we're talking here in Pennsylvania about directly running them? It's kind of open. They We are just looking at all uh, possible uses. We weren't given a direction whether we're selling or renting. It's just places these could be a good fit. Okay. As we're starting to wrap up, are there other recommendations that you came across while you were putting the research together or things that you would want to highlight? So, yes, as far as recommendations, a lot of the ones that we were able to come up with were pretty common sense. We encourage DGS to continue their effort to modernize how the state property is inventoried. There was just a few scattered cases of us finding a property that was vacant and we didn't really know if that was even still in state hands. So they're going to be checking into that soon. The General Assembly should keep considering case by case how to sale, gift, or rent out state property. Now, hopefully now they're aware that this is one of the many things you can do with unused state property. And we just kind of encourage uh, maybe in the future, uh, Pennsylvania's own DCED could help a bit more with the redevelopment of state-owned properties and try to mitigate the effects of on the local economies when things like prisons or hospitals that, the community, that are very important to communities close. Hopefully we we're able to find something to replace those. And, and just a new use for that land. Okay, thanks. Thanks for reviewing those. Well, it's time for us to wrap this up. So thank you so much for taking the time, Glenn and Brian, to talk about this report. There is more information available. It's on our website, Joint State Government Commission, which is jsg.legis.state.pa.us. Thanks all for listening.